We are in Hebrews 3 this morning, guys. And I'll give you a little bit of a, a preview. I debated about whether to do this or not. But we're actually going to we'll be in Hebrews 3 this week. And in the month leading up to Christmas, we're actually going to switch over and go through the book of Malachi, which would be the last prophet in our Old Testament scriptures, which you know the one people widely believed was maybe written towards the end uh, of the, the period of time the Old Testament took place in. But just as a way of saying, you know, we, we saw in Exodus, God had this big plan for his people and that it was pointing forward to someone greater than Moses, which is actually what we're going to talk about today. Hebrews is giving us this taste that this is Jesus, right? Jesus is this one greater one that we've been waiting for, that we now have confidence for life in. But we're going to place ourselves kind of in the month of December, the mindset of what it would have been like to be in Israel under the prophet Malachi, where we're going, okay, we're seeing some things, we're not seeing some things, what does it look like still to follow God? So I'll let you know that we're, we'll take a, a little pause from Hebrews. We're going to walk through Malachi in December, and then we'll come back to Hebrews. But uh, I mean, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed Hebrews almost as much as Exodus. It's, it's been fun for me to go through these scriptures before I get to turn around and teach it to anybody. Uh, I told you guys Exodus kicked my butt most weeks just with trying to keep everything together. Hebrews has been another one of those more difficult reads. But it has, been, uh, it has been humbling for me. I hope it's been an encouragement for you all that every week we are getting to see in Hebrews how Jesus is greater than blank. How the author has just been reminding us of all these things. Because, I mean, if you remember the context of the early church here that the author is writing to, they were facing persecution. They were facing hardship. And so when you and I go through hardship, and, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be persecution that we face. When we struggle, when we wrestle, when we see opposition, we tend to do some of the same things the early church did in Hebrews. And they, they came from a Jewish background, so they had a lot of structure, they had a lot of foundation that they could fall back on and say, well, if we did this, maybe things won't be as bad. The author of Hebrews says, no, no. Stick with Jesus because Jesus is greater. And it, the whole book just walks through how all these different things that we may tend to fall back on. He says, no, Jesus is greater than this. Jesus is greater than this. There's a lot of Old Testament language to encourage his audience why Jesus is greater. So last week in chapter 2, we saw how our, our author showed us Jesus is greater than this power production self. Kind of this one word to catch this other narrative that was running all throughout Exodus, right? There's God's kingdom, and then there's a kingdom that teaches us we need power, we need production, we need self to actually be able to live for God, or just to live, period. We saw from Hebrews 2, Jesus is greater than power because all things are under Christ's control. Right? We talked about the scripture even said, regardless of whether it looks like it right now, all things are under the subjection of of Christ. That was verse 8, a big key verse there. And we saw that production-wise, Jesus is also greater than production because what he's done has proven a great salvation for us. The author says, look, I know that in suffering and in hardship, your tendency is to want to go make things happen to get yourself out. And he says, that's, 
That's not something you have to do. That's not what we have in Christ. Christ, his salvation being greater. And self, and I love the picture that Christ's suffering, even to the point of death, didn't disqualify him from the crown of glory and crown of honor that God had, right? That, that what Jesus went through and experienced for us didn't take away from who he was. It didn't define who he was, but it allowed him to make our salvation possible. So Jesus was greater than power, production, and self. Week one in Hebrews 1, we talked about Jesus being greater than the angels. I don't have time to recap everything, but you could just Keep that one in the back of your heads. Today in chapter 3, we're going to see how Jesus is greater than something else that also keeps building in this Old Testament language we, that we've got going. See, this is why we went through Exodus before we went through Hebrews, because there's a lot of Exodus that comes up in Hebrews. The idea we talked about in Hebrews 1, that it's better for us that Jesus is God's son rather than God's servant. Watch for that. That idea is going to come back up today. But we're going to see today that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. So we, we had to go through Exodus to know what the author was talking about. Why is it important for us that Jesus is greater than Moses? Our main point today, God's people are a house built in Christ. Therefore, we humble ourselves to be reconciled to Christ's design. You could also say... If we are to be a house in Christ, we have to let Christ build us as his house. Okay, that's, that's the big picture of where we're going. There, there's a, the author's very careful to say why we are the house and not something else that we'll get to. But today, this is what we're going to see. God's people are a house built in Christ. So what we do, we are reconciled. We're built into Christ. So beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Just Hold on to that. The builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our, conf our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they, shall all, well, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Lord, as we come to you this morning... Father, we are ready, we are anticipating the birth of your son that's coming in a, you know, we get to celebrate in about a month. 
Lord, we know many of us here today have professed with our mouths and believe in our hearts that, that you are greater and that your son is better. But Father, much like the early church, when, when things come up that we don't understand, when we're filled with anxiety, worry, frustration, God, when we just don't know what comes up next, like if we feel like we're in a holding pattern, Lord, we, we don't tend to cling to that. Father, we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded of why you are greater. And because you are greater, Lord, that means something about who I am. That means something about who we are, Lord. That gives us a, a peace, a hope as we celebrate in Advent today. A hope that is greater than what we are going through. Father, show us today as your author is is writing to his audience to tell them why Jesus is greater than Moses and what that means for them. Show us what it is to be built into your likeness as your house. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, as we look at this, the first thing we really got to wrap our minds around is as he's kind of putting together this, this flow of what it means to, like, that Jesus is greater than Moses, he really lands on that we are a house built in Christ. So notice how he talks about Jesus and how he talks about God, how he talks about Moses in the first uh, five or six verses here. So he starts off calling Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, right? This, this priestly language immediately is going to trigger our minds to go back to Exodus and say, okay, if Jesus is our high priest, if Jesus is our apostle, then, then we're starting to see, okay, he's, he's, the author's about to dive in and, and use some Exodus language here. And indeed, this is what we see in verse 2, a direct reference to Moses. He says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, to God the Father, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Right. So Jesus and Moses were both faithful to God in the roles that they were given. But lest we get confused as to, well, is, is Jesus just kind of doing the same thing that Moses did? Because we know from Exodus, Moses was pointing toward a Messiah. Somebody was going to come do his job even better. We're told in verse 2, verse 3, excuse me, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And we get this curious analogy. He says he's worthy of more glory as a builder has more glory than the house itself. Those of you who work in construction, I mean, I've, I've noticed when we put up buildings around town, you put a big, big sign in the front yard that says, this is the name of the contractor who's doing all the work, right? So that everybody that drives by can say, oh, they did, they did pretty nice. Next time I need some work done or next time I'm selling some land and I want some stuff developed, I want to call those guys, right? It's, it's not really shameless promoting. It's just kind of a good picture of this. The house looks nice, but it's a testimony to the work that was done by someone else. So really, all the glory goes to the builder. It's why you would want to build your things well, because it reflects on a little bit of who you are, as, as, at least as a contractor. So it says, look, Jesus is more gloried than Moses. He's worthy of more glory as the glory of a builder is greater than the actual house. And then he says, now God is the builder of all things. 
verse 4. And why is Jesus greater? Why does he get to be greater than Moses? Because Jesus, like we saw in Hebrews 1, but it comes back up here, Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5, Moses was a, a faithful servant, right? He was still pointing to the glory, but he wasn't allowed to take the glory for himself. He was not a son of God, a child of God. And yet in verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So being the son of God, he had that right to say, no, all that glory and honor that goes to the builder, I'm the son of the builder. I was with him when he did the building. That glory also belongs to me. And then we find our place in all of this in the last half of verse 6. It says, so if Moses was kind of like pointing to the better builder to come, Jesus shows up and says, I, I am the builder. Where do we fall out in this? Verse 6, we are his house, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. And I started to think, okay, it's nice to see this here in Hebrews, but does Scripture really kind of talk about us as the house of God? Because I think for most of us, and this may be a more American understanding, we think of the church, right? Like this building is the house of God. Well, the Scripture does give us a pretty big idea. We ourselves are truly the house of God. Certainly we talked about this when we were in Exodus, right? That God designed us to be a, you know, his, his priesthood, his tabernacle, his temple. But the New Testament authors pick up on this and say, yeah, God did not change that in Jesus. He says, you are still called to be his house. Paul uses this imagery in Colossians 1 and again in 1 Corinthians 12 and again in Romans 12 to show, no, Christ's church is his body. Like we are being built together as the house of God. Peter puts it very bluntly in 1 Peter 2. He says, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. In fact, if you watch throughout the New Testament, one of the most common phrases that describes about like what does faith look like and what are we doing as followers of Christ, it's being built up, built up. That, that language there in the Greek is the same whether you're talking about building up a house or building up a person. Like, like the, they just understood we are being built. That is the, the image from the Old Testament we saw. We're using the exact same language to convey it's the same thing. And guys, we have to, I want us to pause really quick this morning to consider the fact that you and I are being built as the house of God should dramatically help us understand then what does the life of faith look like? Because when, when I listen, most of our struggles and anxiety in life comes almost from the mindset of we believe we are the builders. And we think we are the ones that are, are doing the actual work, that we are the workers contributing to the house being built, and so there's anxiety and frustration over things just not getting done right, or things looking, you know, not quite to the design that we expect it to be. See, when we are workers, when we're the ones doing the building, then we ask questions like, what are we building? How are we building? When are we going to finish this season of building and move on to the next season of building, right? And so that's, that's the mentality that many of us, it's, it's very easy for us to slip into because again, we see from this text, the builder gets more glory than the house, right? 
And if we were made to give glory to God, we, we've seen in Scripture, sin tells us to keep a little bit of that glory for ourselves. So it's easy for us to say, but I'm really doing a work too here, God. Like, look at my ministry over here. Shouldn't, shouldn't I get a little bit of that? Because I'm doing all this great stuff in your name. This is where we have to go back to last week and say, well, that's where our power, our production, our self-narrative just kind of kicks in. We, we start focusing inward on what am I building? How am I building? How does what is going on around me in my world that has Christ's name, how does it reflect me? And yet in Hebrews 3 and in the New Testament, we're not described as the workers building the house. We're not in the position where we get to receive glory for the work that's being done. In fact, we are told we are the house that is being built. The life of faith then looks a little bit different when we consider we are less the workers building the house than we are the house that God is actually building. And it changes us to instead say, what are we building? What am I doing? To then ask the question, okay, what is building me? What is speaking into my life? If I understand that I'm a house being built, is God the only one that is doing the building? I mean, a great example of this is just the way we engage with, with our world, with our phones. I, I always just think of it as our screens, right? Our phones, our TVs. I'm not here to say that all of that is necessarily wrong or evil for us. But we have to understand if we are a house being built, whatever we are taking in builds and shapes something. Is God the primary and the sole builder? How are we building? That question then becomes, okay, instead of me looking at what are other people doing to see if things are being built correctly, then that question makes me ask, okay, but what fruit is being produced in me? It, I always think about it like when you, when you get anxious or stressed or pressed. Like when you press something, whatever's on the inside comes out. So when you are being pressed, what, what is coming out? Then if you think about, you know, we like, well, when are we finished building? When can we move on to this next season? I almost think, well, if I'm a house that's being built, do I even have the right to ask the builder, when, when are you done with this little bit? I, like, I, not that it's wrong. I understand that is a question we wrestle with, but that's not, that's not really a question that I'm, I'm almost thinking we even have the right to ask at that point. I mean, our, our faith our understanding of what it is to follow God changes when we consider we are the house of Christ. We are not the ones building the house of Christ. We are the house of Christ that is being built. And the author is going to kind of unpack this a little bit further. He says, okay, I can understand how that may sound very passive. And especially, look, he's writing to an audience that's facing persecution. So if they're to receive any hope, a message of saying, let God build you, feels very passive, and you're saying, okay, great, like what do I do with that, though? But watch, watch what the author of Hebrews does as he talks about what does this mean. In the next five or six verses, verses 7 through 15, he's going to say there's a lot of things that we do 
therefore, as houses that are being built. But just watch. Watch as we read this. I'll read it one more time. But as you listen to this, just ask yourself, am I being given a list of things that a worker does when he's building something? Or am I giving, or am I being given a call to persevere in being built? Okay, let's just listen to verses 7 through 15 again. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Okay, if, if we hear that, we start to understand that there's several calls to action in there. That, that the life of a house being built is not just that I'm sitting there and letting these things happen to me. It is an active life, but the actions are maybe not as we expect, especially if he's writing to a church that's like, we're facing opposition. We're facing persecution. We've got people coming against us. We need to do something the author does give him a call to do something, but listen to this call. The call in verse 8, and it's repeated a couple times throughout, it says, Do not harden your hearts. Verses 7 through 11 are a direct quote of Psalm 95. And most people, much smarter than me, have studied the scriptures, believe that Psalm 95, where it's talking about not hardening your hearts is in the rebellion, putting God to the test... Some people will say, well, this is, this is referring to Exodus 17. When God brings the people out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they praise him, they're so grateful they're delivered, then they can't find water to drink. And they say, God, it was better for us to live in slavery in Egypt where we at least had food and water than to be free and have nothing. And God says, are you kidding me? Some people, though, say, well, you know, you've got a reference in verse 9 to they saw my works, they put me to the test for 40 years. That could be talking about the 40 years of wilderness in the desert. Really, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter which one because the fact that they've got multiple instances where they could point to and say, well, that looks like rebellion against God. Well, that looks like rebellion. Well, it could be talking about the fact that there's multiple ones is not a great look for Israel. That even they're like, Man, there's a lot of different seasons of us being in rebellion against God. But it looks like, as he's saying, the call to action is not go do something to throw off the oppression. It says, do not harden your hearts. He's not calling his people to build a certain thing. He is saying, you have to allow me to build you a certain way. Verses 10 and 11, watch Watch what God gets most angry at. What it says in verse 10, I was provoked with that generation. I said, they always go astray. What makes God this angry? They go astray in their heart. 
So again, he's not necessarily mad at them because they're doing the wrong thing. They're building incorrectly. He's mad that they have decided not to let him build in them. They, they have shut him out of the role that he has as the builder of all things. Verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you a propensity to build the wrong way? No, an unbelieving evil heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And again in verse 13, you know, exhort one another so that you are not hardened. This language of heart hardening is all over this section as the author says, look, what God is after, if you are a house built in Christ, he is after our humility to allow him to build in us his image his likeness, to allow ourselves to be reconciled to Christ's design. And I love that maybe the only verse in here that you could really say, uh, well, God is telling us to actually go do something, in verse 13, exhort one another every day. So exhort in English for us is tell others what to do, essentially. Give a command, give a charge. That's what it means in English. But exhort is not the greatest translation of the Greek. That verb there that says exhort one another, parakaleo, is often translated exhort, but it really more commonly is to plead with, to comfort, or to pray for. So rather than a call to go tell somebody, hey, stay out of sin, which is how we read verse 13 in English, it's really a call to go look and say, hey, please, be made right with God. Do not let your heart be hardened. Do not fall away from the presence of God. Please, I beg you, come be made right. The author very clearly is saying, look, the, the life of faith is, again, it is less about me building the right thing or doing the right thing or making sure everybody else is building and doing the right thing and more of me saying, man, I'm the house of God. I have to choose to let God actually, in His Spirit, I have to let Him do this work within me because we, in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. So I have to let God do that work in me. And the last, the last piece of this, guys, it, it is interesting because as we're reading this, when we think about hard hearts, in scripture. Just, just look at Exodus, okay? Because we, we just went through Exodus. When you think about people or places or stories in scripture in Exodus about hard hearts, where's the first place our mind goes? It's probably Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh had a hard heart and it was resulted in the plagues. I love though, clearly look, clearly the author is referencing all this history from Exodus. Do we see Pharaoh mentioned anywhere in here? Pharaoh's missing, but Israel is not. It would have been easy for the author to reference Pharaoh, right? He was the enemy. And if you're, if you're speaking to an audience that is persecuted and struggling, what's going to rally the spirit more? Pointing out the enemy that had a hard heart that would have been really easy to just look at what they were doing. Remember how bad we were treated under that. We'll go after that. 
that rallies people more than look at, look at yourselves. Look at your own hardness of heart. Remember what happened when your ancestors, those who were the people of God, remember when the people of God hardened their hearts. Remember when their focus was on trying to be the workers building rather than the house being built. Their hearts were hard. They were not right with God. The author is not calling them back to Pharaoh, which we could have understood, and that would have made a similar point. But he says the big reason why he's calling out in Israel, he says in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, this is God speaking about his own people, they shall not enter my rest. He says when, when the people of God took on the role of the worker instead of the role of the house. Their hearts were hardened and they did not enter my rest. Entering rest being a very Old Testament picture of saying they were not right with me. They were not at peace. They were not reconciled. They were not with me. Church, what we're seeing in Hebrews 3 is this picture of when God's people choose to not be the house that God was building, but to try to be the workers helping him do the building, our hearts get hard and we miss out on his design. This is why God calls his people to be a house built in Christ. Therefore, our calling is to humble ourselves so that we are reconciled to Christ's design. And just to give you another Another picture of what this looks like and, and why this can make sense for our faith today. When I was growing up, I loved baseball. I still love baseball. I, I love the Nationals. I used to love the Expos before they came back to, to Washington, even when they have terrible seasons. I, I, love, I love baseball. I got that from my dad. There was a season in my life where I loved it so much, I was both playing and umpiring baseball at the same time. So I was playing high school baseball, and then on Saturdays or off days, I would go umpire for the local Little League. So if my goal was to grow as a baseball player, right, like I want to get better, I want to develop my skills, I want to just grow my love for the game, right? Because just as with most sports or activities, if you do it and you love it, they get harder over time, so you have to grow your love in addition to growing your skill. If I'm trying to grow my skill and my love for baseball, which one do you think did that more, umpiring or playing? Obviously playing, right? Playing the game when you're with your team, you know, with a bunch of other guys and coaches who all want you and want to get better at your skills, who just love being out there, like, that really speaks to the heart. That speaks to your skill. That allows you to get better. The umpire, I umpired because I loved baseball. But after you, you call a couple of games and you're behind the plate and you feel how the parents look at you and you're the difference between their kid being a, a T-baller and a major leaguer for the rest of their life because you didn't call enough strikes for their kid who's clearly going to be the next phenom pitcher or you, you made some call and their kid got out. Like, that does not grow your love for the game. And that certainly doesn't grow my skill for the game either. It grows my knowledge, right? Which is why umpires and players have a lot in common. They both know a lot about the game, 
Right? You, would hope, you would hope the umpire knows a lot if they're calling all the rules. But a player is actually going to grow in their skill and grow in their love, not an umpire. But now think about this too. Which one is easier? Being an umpire. Because being a player, you've got practice, you've got games, you're on a team, so you've got to work with other people. And sometimes you're doing really good and your teammates are not. Sometimes you're doing terrible and all your teammates are great. So you've got a lot of tension, a lot of working together that's not always easy. Umpiring, it's you and the other, in Little League, it was me and the one guy in the field, and it was, it was black or white. You're safe or you're out. There was no instant replay, so you can't really question anything. It's either fair or foul. It's either a ball or a strike. You either know the rules or you don't. You're either nice to me or you get ejected. I mean, that's being an umpire, it's very straightforward. And, and when you're younger, you get paid for umpiring and you don't get paid for playing. Right? So, so umpiring has a lot going for it. Umpiring is a lot easier, but I fear that we tend to live our faith more in the umpire realm as one that's like doing the work of building, right? Because I'm helping whoever created the game of baseball, I'm helping keep the rules. I'm helping make sure there's order and there's structure and that it all follows what it's supposed to look like. That sounds like a good thing. But being an umpire does not grow my love nor my skill for actually playing the game, which is what I was made to do. This is also, I was thinking about this this week, this is why we have adult softball leagues. Because as you get older, there's way more people that still would rather go play the game, even if they can't you know, play baseball as they used to. We can all go play slow pitch softball together. But most people would much rather do that than go stand an umpire. There's just, there's just a, a, a certain skill set that is required for an umpire, and I, I miss it. Um, you know, if the opportunity comes up, well, sure, we'll go do it again. But it's, it's why there's way more people that would rather go play adult softball than umpire, because you're still playing. You still get to practice. You still get to grow that love and that skill that you don't when you're umpiring. I was even thinking, okay, if I was trying to introduce someone to baseball, would I have them go meet a player or an umpire? I'd want them to go meet a player. Because an umpire can sit down and tell them all the rules and all, all the, the ins and outs. But unless they've also played, they don't have the skills. And they don't necessarily have the same heart. In fact, they probably have a much more cynical heart because they've been you know, calling the shots, judging it for a long time. Church, I, I, I shared that image to say, look, God is not asking for more umpires when it comes to faith. God even himself says, look, I'm the builder. I'm the one who created the game. I know what's righteous and what's not. I know what's of my image and what's not. I did not make you to go be my little voices to tell everybody. Like, I know. I am the standard. I have no problem upholding my justice, my righteousness, my wrath, my love, my discipline. I, I, I got that covered. I did not ask you to go be an umpire, I have made you to be a player. I did not make you to go build the house. I made you to be the house being built. And so I would encourage you today with this picture in mind, just two questions to consider. 
from our text. The first is if we are disciples and we are a house being built, not the ones building the house, then we need to ask ourselves, what is building my life? Just understand, there are a lot of voices that speak into your life, that shape how you see things going on in the world around you. If you think about how much time we spend in Scripture or in prayer on a weekly basis and how much time we also spend listening to other I'm not, I really am not trying to just sugarcoat a particular thing. I'm just saying, listening to any other source, right? Who is speaking into our lives? And if they are speaking, if we are giving them room to speak into our lives, is it shaping me into the image of God? So pair the question, what is building my life, with the second question, what heart is being built in my life? Because the knowledge piece can't be it, right? Both a player and an umpire know the game of baseball well. But only one of them is actually going to be practicing and using their skill and growing in not just their skill, but their love for the game. I mean, I keep thinking, how can guys be in their 60s and 50s either managing or, uh, I mean, in some cases, there's some baseball guys who hit their 50s before they're t- Like, how can you stay in that environment playing 162 games a year? It's, your body's got to be aching after about the fourth or fifth game. What keeps you going is the fact that you love the game. An umpire does not have that same love that a player does. Just like a a worker of a house, we're just going to be glad when the house is done. We don't have the same love that the builder does, that God is doing the ones building. So if we're going to be asking ourselves, who is speaking into my life? Who is shaping my worldview? Or what is shaping my worldview in my life? We also have to look and say, okay, what heart is coming out of this? Right? If, if someone is saying or doing all the right things, but the heart is not right, then, then be free, church, this morning to say that, that should be grounds enough. Yes, it, it might not be as, as firm a case as we would like, but if the heart is not right, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to give it a, a place to, to speak into us because we're seeing, look, the heart is what God is really, truly after. And I hope that you guys have, have seen this um, just, man, in, in the vision season, but just, I hope you see it every day when you're here at the church. I mean, the, the one thing that Abigail and I prayed for before we came here, and it continues to be our biggest prayer for you guys daily, is just we pray for soft hearts. Like that, that You guys are all going to go through different things, that, and I love when I get to be part of it, but you guys go through so much more than I get to physically sit in the room and experience with you. So as your pastor, just to be able to stand and tell you everything to do, when I don't get to sit in the room with you all the time, that can't be my approach because I'm not the one doing the building. But I pray daily that you guys have soft hearts, that you would hear and receive the work of Christ being done in your life. When we, when we pray about church growth and who we hope finds a home worshiping with us, we pray for soft hearts, right? Because that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't fall along any lines other than, man, someone 
who wants to grow, someone who is ready to learn the image of God and who wants others to learn the image of God. We pray for soft hearts. And I hope, I mean, as you guys have heard in all the vision language, you know, we, our mission, we are a community on mission submitted to Christ and committed to disciple making. Our vision to be loving as Christ, learning from Christ, living in Christ. You know, the whole reason we talked about valuing Christ as our life, reconciliation to God and others, sharing and experiencing God, the unity in Christ, the image of God, the power of prayer. Like, all of those things are heart things. And it is, it is a work, and there's a little bit of a tension that says, man, if I want this heart piece to be right, i got to trust that God is actually going to do the building. And not just in terms of he's just going to grow the church, but that God is actually going to give me discernment to know how to handle a situation, give me words to speak to someone who's in crisis, that God actually does do the work when we keep our hearts right with him. Church, that is what we see in Hebrews 3, and I pray that over you guys every day. So we, we pray together this morning as we close. Jehovah God, thou art creator, upholder, proprietor of all things. I cannot escape from thy presence or control, nor do I desire to do so. My privilege is to be under the agency of omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, and grace. Thou art love with more than just parental affection. I admire thy heart. I adore thy wisdom. I stand in awe of thy power. I abase myself before thy purity. It is the discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish my fear. Allure me into thy presence. Help me to bewail and confess my sins. When I review my past guilt and when I'm conscious of my present unworthiness, I tremble to come to thee because I know my foundation is in the dust. That I have condemned thy goodness, I have defied thy power, I have trampled upon thy love, I have rendered myself worthy of eternal death, but my recovery cannot spring from any cause in me. I can destroy myself, but I cannot save myself. Yet thou hast laid help on one that is mighty, for there is mercy with thee, and exceeding riches in thy kindness through Jesus. May I always... Lord, may we always feel our need of him. Let thy restored joy be my strength. May it keep me from lusting after the world. May it bear up heart and mind and loss of comforts. May it lead me to live in the valley of death. May it work in me the image of the heavenly and give me to enjoy the first fruits of spirituality such as the departed saints know full well. Father, may we find peace this morning and allowing you to build us into your image and joining you in that work and letting go of our anxiety and our frustration and the bitterness and our cynicism when we struggle with doing the building work ourselves because we know that is not what you have given us to do. Father, remind us of that and encourage us of that as we go this week. In your name we pray. Amen.